welcome to our second episode of Gut Instincts GI Research Updates, bringing you the latest research in gastroenterology and hepatology straight to your smartphone. I'm Fitz, I'm a clinical lecturer in gastroenterology at Oxford with an interest in mucosal immunology and nutrition. And I'm Tamsin Cargill, I'm a gastroenterology registrar and PhD student in Oxford, interested in hepatology, viral hepatitis and vaccine development. The gastro literature can seem very overwhelming because there's just so many papers coming out. Um, So we started this podcast to bring you some of the GI-related highlights that have come out recently and discuss why we think they're interesting. So each episode, we're going to try and talk through two cracking primary research papers in a bit of detail. One will be clinical and one translational, and we'll give you our take on the research. And we're also going to bring you our super speedy five in five section, where we'll try and summarise the key points of five papers in five minutes. Last week, it took us 11 minutes, but five and 11 just doesn't have the same ring to it. So we're going to stick with the same name and just ignore the time. Disclaimer alert, clearly nothing in this podcast constitutes medical advice. So if you're a patient, you should consult your medical practitioner about your medical management. And for doctors, I'm sure you wouldn't base your medical management solely on what a couple of people told you on a podcast. Now, thank you to our army of listeners for tuning into our first episode and giving us some feedback all all 20 of you um you you are the best we hugely appreciate your thoughts of how we can improve this podcast and your listening and learning experience so please let us know what you think write us a glowing review on whatever platform you're streaming us through connect with us uh, via twitter at gi update or you can email us at gut instinct podcast or one word at gmail.com Right. Um, last week I did the clinical paper, Tams, and I think you've got something clinical and sort of bile-flavoured for us this week. Yes. So um, firstly, before I start, I just wanted to say up front, I realised there were two pretty important trials published uh, last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, these will get a mention, or more than a mention, in a, previous, in a future episode to come. But today I'm going to focus on some different papers. Um, Two linked papers um, that focus on the treatment of refractory ascites in cirrhosis. So both papers report the outcomes from the REDUCE study trial, um, and that stands for Repeated Drainage of Untreatable Cirrhosis, which compared long-term abdominal drains with um, large volume paracentesis for the treatment of refractory ascites due to cirrhosis. So the first paper was actually published last year in July in APNT, and that covers the quantitative outcomes of the trial. And the second paper, um, which is the one I saw uh, that caught my eye, um, was published online ahead of print in December 2020 in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management. And that covers the um, qualitative outcomes of the trial. So, so this trial addresses an important but understudied area of end-stage liver disease, Um, which is palliative interventions um, specific for some of the symptoms of end-stage liver disease. And everyone who's listening to this podcast will know that um, deaths from end-stage liver disease have increased massively um, over the past 40 years or so. And one of the predominant symptoms experienced by um, individuals with end-stage liver disease is refractory ascites. So this is 
where somebody has ascites, um, but they are intolerant to or unresponsive to diuretics. Um, so they need an alternative form of management um, to relieve the symptoms from uh, their sort of large volume ascites. And, and what's the scale of this uh, of this problem, Tamsin? Um, unsurprisingly, it's pretty massive. So it's the most common reason for hospital admission in people with end-stage liver disease. Um, so any clinician up and down the country will have seen patients with this issue. It's prognostically a very bad sign. So median transplant-free survival in individuals with refractory ascites is only six months. Um, but despite this, most people don't receive optimal palliative care. So we know that nearly 70% of deaths in cirrhosis with ascites occurred in hospital, of which 97% followed an emergency, so unplanned hospital admission. Um, and that is an indicator in of itself, because, because these hospital admissions were unplanned, the uh, patients didn't necessarily choose to die in hospital. So most refractory ascites in England is managed by large volume paracentesis in hospital. Um, and the scale of this is huge as well. So this was reported in Lancet Gastro Hep in 2018. Nearly 14,000 um, cirrhosis related deaths between 2013 and 2015, so that's nearly a third, required large volume paracentesis in the last year of life at least once. So although, although the evidence suggests that most people with refractory ascites are managed by large volume paracentesis, there is an alternative, um, and that is a long-term abdominal drain. And basically what these are are tunnel drains inserted under local anaesthetic, and the patient goes home with them in situ, and then caregivers or community nurses drain one to two litres of fluid up to three times a week at home. And many people might be um, might have seen these used as sort of plural drains used in a similar way, long-term plural drains, um, where people have um, long-term plural effusions that again uh, need draining, and this this enables them to be managed at home. Now, um, in the UK, uh, several thousand long-term abdominal drains are inserted every year for malignant ascites. And um, in this setting, sort of low complication rates have been reported. However, they're not really routinely used for refractory ascites um, due to end-stage liver disease. And this, I think, is due to the potential risk for peritonitis. But there's no previous research into their use in end-stage liver disease. So anecdotally, these drains are used in, in the setting of refractory ascites, for um for some patients in end stage liver disease but are you saying that there's not very much in the in in the sense of sort of randomized controlled trials previously of using this technique exactly sorry there's no large-scale trials of this um and the evidence that is published would suggest that actually most refractory ascites is actually managed by large volume paracentesis rather than these drains so clearly as if, if they are being used anecdotally it's not due to trial not it's not due to evidence-based trial-based data 
Yeah, and it sort of goes against so much of the, you know, the sort of the teaching we get that these drains must be removed after six hours and that the risk of the risk of infection is is so great. Exactly. So this was a, a trial that's answering a pretty important question, really. So Reduce was a non-blinded 12-week feasibility randomised controlled trial, and it compared long-term abdominal drains to large-volume paracentesis in individuals with cirrhosis and refractory ascites. And this was conducted across five hospitals and, com- and their associated community settings in the south of England between September 2015 and September 2018. So because this was a feasibility study, it wasn't blinded and it didn't have a primary outcome pre-specified, but the authors did predefine um, some study success criteria. And initially, you might think that if they don't have a primary outcome criteria, perhaps uh, this trial isn't of good quality. But actually, because it's a feasibility trial, the success criteria that they set were actually really practical. So the first one was that they wanted to see whether the attrition was above 50%. And you'd hope it wasn't, but actually this group of people are really sick and they've got a median survival of six months. So if you're recruiting to a study such as this, quite a few people are going to potentially die before the end of follow-up. And therefore, attrition rates are going to be high, not necessarily because people are dropping out, but because people are dying. So um, that was the first one. And then they used, and I'll discuss these later, they used a lot of questionnaires and interviews um, to assess some of the, some different outcomes from the trial um, that might not be able to be assessed in a quantitative way. And they wanted to see whether the completion rate of those questionnaires and interviews was over 80%. They also wanted the long-term drain group to spend under 50% of time in hospital related to their ascites compared to the large volume paracentesis group, because that was really the aim of putting in the long-term drain, so they wouldn't spend as much time in hospital. Um, And the last um, success criteria was that the long-term t- drains would be removed in under 10% of participants um, in that arm. So the inclusion criteria were fractury ascites requiring over one large volume paracentesis per month, at least twi- uh, twice prior to recruitment. And the participants were randomised one-to-one using a computer-generated gen- algorithm, but it wasn't blinded. So the intervention was um, a rocket drain um, under local anaesthetic, and that was inserted uh, by an interventional radiologist or, or a trained hepatologist. And then guidance was given to the participants and community nurses and GPs about how to manage um, the drainage of that. Um, they drained one to two litres of ascites two to three times a week, uh, usually a trial nurse coming in to do that, um, a district nurse, um, not a trial nurse, sorry, and um, no albumin was given uh, during the drainage. And all participants were given Cipro, uh, 500 milligrams once a day for the duration of the trial um, in both the intervention and the control group. The control group um, had usual care, um, which was day unit or hospital admission as required um, for large volume paracentesis with albumin cover plus Cipro. So um, they calculated the sample size based on the fact that they would probably have a really high att- uh, attrition rate, as we've discussed already. 
So they aim to have 12 per group, so 24 per group based on a 50% attrition rate. And in the end, 36 were randomized, so 19 in the large volume paracentesis group and 17 in the long-term acidic drain group. So the results of the trial, um, so the baseline characteristics uh, were relatively balanced. The other thing to say about all these patients, of course, is that um, out of 36 of them, 35 had a contraindication for TIPS and um, one of them had been offered TIPS but declined it. So for the quantitative outcomes, the study success criteria were met. So attrition was under 50%. 15 of the 36 didn't make it to the last study visit. Um, 80% of those were due to death um, and 20% due to withdrawal. The completion rate of questionnaires was very high, so it's between 79 and 97%, um, and they were done longitudinally, so that's pretty good. Uh, long-term drainage group uh, spent under 50% of their uh, of time in hospital due to their ascites compared to the large volume paracentesis group. So um, data was available for uh, 15 of 17 of the long-term acidic drain group, and out of those 15 people, five of them required extra drainage in hospital. So 10 of them were managed in the community with their long-term acidic drain without any need for coming back to hospital for further paracentesis. But five of them did have to come back. Um, and they those five required a total of 13 further drains in hospital, some of which would, the emissions were due to other reasons and they just drained them in hospital anyway. Um, but comparing that to um, the large volume paracentesis group, all of them obviously required further drainage in hospital. Um, and that, that was a total of 69 further drains, which is actually, when it's written down like that, quite a lot. And long-term drain removal, um, only one drain was removed in the long-term acidic drain group. And that was because the um, participant pulled it out accidentally after it was inserted sort of the next day um, and they elected not to reinsert it. Those are pretty impressive outcomes from uh, from this trial. So, so there's ten of these patients who, as we said, are refractory to uh, refractory to medications, have contraindications for tips, and are not suitable for transplantation. Who were managed in the community and didn't need any large volume paracentesis, and overall. The, uh, it works out as about an 80% reduction in the number of drains um, or large volume paracentesis needed overall yeah. in the long-term group. That's 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 pretty pretty uh, enormous. Yeah. yeah, no, it, it is. Agree. The other things, they, they looked at quite a lot of other outcomes as well, but the other outcome of sort of interest, I guess, was peritonitis with the theoretical risk that the long-term acidic drain might lead to increased risk of peritonitis. But they found, obviously, it's a small study, and don't know if it was powered properly for this, but only one out of the 17, so 6% in the long-term acidic drain group compared to 11% in the large-volume paracentesis group um, developed peritonitis. And um, just to say also, with the with the diagnosis of peritonitis, they were pragmatic about that, as we would be in real life, i.e. they they weren't routinely culturing the acidic fluid. They were literally um, doing that only if they were symptomatic with pain, fever, decompensation, worsening renal failure, and then they did a tap. And were there any other 
adverse events in either of the groups? There were. There were no serious adverse events in either group. The main adverse event of having the long-term acidic drain was either mild uh, leakage or cellulitis, which was all self-limiting in seven out of 17 of the participants in that group versus two of the participants uh, had bleeding or leakage in the large volume paracentesis group. And it will come out a little bit more in the qualitative data, but the cellulitis and leakage, if if you're at home, is obviously a bit of a different issue to when you're um, in hospital and you've got people to sort it out. So it wasn't a massive problem, but it, it was a complication that was relatively common. The other thing that they analysed, which was pretty impressive, were the cost differences. And they calculated this based on various aspects. Um, But they they did try and include staff costs and um, carer costs. And they found that in the long-term abdominal drain group, the costs were much lower of the magnitude of sort of £300 versus £800 in the large volume paracentesis group. So overall in this feasibility study, the, the long-term abdominal drains are associated with fewer drains, fewer admissions to uh, attendances to hospital, similar rates of sort of severe complications as in peritonitis and lower healthcare yeah. costs, presumably driven by fewer attendances to hospital. So uh, you, you said at the start about qualitative work that they've also done, and I guess that's really the crux of the matter here because these patients uh, are nearing the end of their lives and it's really about the quality of their lives and the outcomes that matter to them. Yeah exactly so um, I realise anecdotally that qualitative work has a bit of a bad rep in some circles and certainly it's discussed less by clinicians when we're considering the evidence base for an intervention I think that's often true but um, I did want to spend a bit of time on this part of the study to just explore in my view, how it complements and enriches the overall study findings. Qualitative studies really have a different aim and emphasis to quantitative work because they're very, very good at answering particular sorts of questions. So they're good at understanding some of the behavioural factors around an intervention and the perceptions of the care receivers and caregivers. And that's especially important in the setting of palliative palliative intervention. So the methods of a qualitative study can also be critically appraised just like a quantitative study. So I'm going to attempt to do that here. What they specifically aimed to do um, was contrast the perceptions of the care pathways between um, long-term acidic drain at home compared with large volume paracentesis in hospital. The aim wasn't to find a representative voice, but a range and spectrum of voices, because really it needs to be able to inform future trials and the and key the implementation of future services. So the authors aimed to recruit 20 people to the qualitative arm. It was only carried out at two out of five of the sites uh, where they were recruiting and they chose that for a practical reason because most of the patients were recruited at those two sites. So there were 27 patients recruited at those sites and 21 were invited to participate but six weren't approached as they were dying quite rapidly. Originally, the authors also aimed to conduct serial interviews with people to try and understand how people's perceptions of the intervention changed across time. But unfortunately, they were unable to do to sort of put in this longitudinal element, mostly because people died before 
interview. So in the end, they did a single qualitative interview lasting about 30 minutes over the telephone in 14 patients, six in the long-term acidic drain arm and eight in the large volume paracentesis arm. And in addition, a qualitative telephone interview lasting about 44 minutes was conducted in eight nurses. So it sounds like they uh, they had a lot of problems with with their with their method or their, their, their sort of planned method for the the qualitative element of this of this study do you think that the methods as as actually performed as opposed to what they originally intended um answer the questions that they that they set yeah so if the aim of of the qualitative work was to discover the full range and spectrum of perceptions this study might fall short because the recruitment was opportunistic rather than purposeful. So this means that the views and experiences of those not recruited, so for example, those who were dying rapidly, who weren't invited to participate, or indeed those that were invited to participate said yes, but then died before they were able to participate. And also the views of those at the sites that were away from the central sites, where less recruitment was happening, they weren't approached for recruitment either. So we're missing some of the voices there that might have had quite different experiences um, in a peripheral site away from the centre with different services, or people that are dying much more rapidly and have a more aggressive course of disease. They might have quite different opinions to the people Um, whose data was actually collected in the end and I think it is important to think about that and remember that. Yeah particularly people who are deteriorating rapidly may not see the benefits of a long-term drain. But I I guess because this is a feasibility study they've, they've set out to do something and found that it wasn't practicable. In a bigger trial they can probably account for this now because they know some of the barriers that they're going to face they could employ a purposeful recruitment strategy to ensure that some of these voices are heard. Okay, so how how did the interviewers carry out these interviews to achieve their study aims? So the aim was to sort of contrast and explore the perceptions of the care pathways. And to do this, the interviewers used a schedule and a topic guide to prompt the steering of the questioning. So they don't say this explicitly in the text, but I think it's a form of semi-structured interviewing. So that enables the um, topics that the um, interviewers um, or the researchers think are important to be covered, um, but also allows in-depth exploration of topics or new topics that might come up during the course of the interview that um, the researchers didn't know about a priori. And they used to to sort of make this interview topic schedule, uh, they they based it on something called the Dixon Woods Theoretical Model of Healthcare Access. And basically, this theory is just saying the stages of the journey as you go through health, as you access healthcare. So A, recognising you need to seek care, i.e. I've got ascites, I need it drained. Two, identifying the right service to do that. Three, getting there. Um, Four, the permeability of the service, i.e. how easy or difficult is it to use and five the adjudication by professionals so um, I go to my GP and say I need a drain and my GP says no you don't sort of thing those kind of barriers so it tried to explore all of those arms of uh, accessing care 
Um, so I think that's that was reasonable. Um, I think they could have considered other ways of developing the schedule topic guide because um, they didn't involve stakeholders, i.e. the patients, caregivers um, and nurses in its iterative development. Um, but it was a practical study and I think they can use the results from the qualitative analysis of this study to inform further qualitative work and update their topic guide and things. And I think overall, you know, the topics they were interested in were covered. So what were the key outcomes from their uh, their interviews? Overall, they found that the long-term acidic drain uh, was acceptable to patients that received it, and it reduced or removed many of the negative um, factors that they attributed and associated with going to hospital regularly for long-term, um, for large volume paracentesis. And they felt that it actually transformed the care pathway and transformed the care they received. So a patient's experience of um, large volume paracentesis was a kind of difficult negotiation often between speaking to their GP, ringing the local AMU or whatever the um, arrangement was to get them in for a drain. And sometimes in different places that was more, that was easier than other places. And there's potential for conflict there. And then it's obviously, there are several steps in accessing drainage that can be difficult, i.e. getting there, so booking transport, parking, paying for parking, and then getting reassessed by the doctor in the hospital, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then having the procedure and then waiting. (laughs) Um, Whereas they found that with the long-term home acidic drain, it was easier it was nicer. They didn't have to do all of those, approach all those barriers every time they needed to drain. And the other thing that was added um, was they liked, you know, there was somebody coming in three times a week. And so that's a point of contact for emotional support and reassurance in case of crisis and some of the other things that they might be, some of the other symptoms they might be experiencing. Can, there's, they've got an, a regular advocate who's seeing them every day. And I think they found that really helpful. That's really interesting because that's not a, I guess, a specific intended outcome of large volume paracentesis versus long term drain. But actually, when you phrase it like that, developing that, you know, a relationship with a regular, uh, a regular caregiver and and having that kind of um, reassurance and emotional support um, and that that person who's sort of sharing the, the journey with you as, as part of the, I guess, the, the, the package of, of having a long term drain. Um, I can see how that could be hugely beneficial for patients uh, at the end of their lives. Yeah, uh, indeed. So so I think um, the qualitative outcomes of this feasibility study were actually some of the most important. And uh, it'll be interesting to see going forward what larger trials of this intervention will find. So, so Tamsin, based on these results... Do you think there's a case for changing our practice or do you think that this is, you know, really the start of the evidence base needed to, to change kind of routine clinical care for these patients? That's a very good question. I think that if a service was available to me locally, a provision for certain individual patients that um, I thought might really benefit from this intervention, um, I think it's a really good option. But uh, overall, I think this is the start of an evidence base. And because um, 
this kind of intervention actually isn't just taking a pill. It relies on a whole network of services and people. It's something that, that can't be done overnight, really. It needs buy-in from the organisation, and that probably does need more evidence. Also, there's a sort of another argument about this in that there is really good evidence from a very large, pretty recent observational study in England, a good quality observational study, that attending planned large volume paracentesis was the factor that was associated with the lower number of inpatient days and a lower probability of dying after an unplanned admission with end-stage liver disease. Should we actually be concentrating on providing planned large volume paracentesis more broadly. Okay, so there's a there's a balance there that maybe there's there's room for improvement in how we deliver large volume paracentesis to these patients and the and the kind of reactive model where we're waiting for people to have their yeah. have symptoms and be flagged up and often be delayed because of you know bed, bed issues and space on day case and all of the the things that get in the way. Um, actually, yeah. that model of care is is suboptimal. And actually, if we can yeah. provide really good large volume paracentesis care, then that's probably the the best comparator in in a larger study. Yeah, potentially. You know, if because some of those barriers that patients talked about in the qualitative study could be circumnavigated by a really good, dedicated large volume paracentesis service. Great. Well, I, th- I think this is fantastic like food for thought and i also think it's you know really impressive for the researchers for taking on a topic that's so difficult um end-stage liver disease uh palliative care these kind of complex interventions um and i think it's you know it's really important area to 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 deal with but it's 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 really challenging from a research point of view so you know sort of full credit to them for for taking this on yeah absolutely So, what have you got for me today, Fitz? Something totally different, Tamsin. Something, <laughs> okay. yeah, a, a million miles away from, I'm from excited. this. Excited. Um, we, we are um, going back to sort of single cell, single cell transcriptomic methods. Back to back to the lab. Our favourite. So this is a paper that's from a group based here in Oxford. The lead authors are uh, David Faulkner Corbett. Uh, Agne Antana Vacute and uh, Korshal Parak, and they're all based in Alison Simmons' lab um, here in Oxford. Now, I haven't just picked this work because of its Oxford connection, or because we know some of the authors and they're they're generally delightful people, um, but it's because I think that this really is an astounding piece of work and something that's going to be a really important and powerful resource for researchers for years to come. This group, uh, Professor Simmons's group, have been real pioneers in the use of single-cell RNA sequencing to understand intestinal cell types and their role in disease. And in previous papers published in both Nature and Cell, they've described novel cell types both in, in the colon, including uh, a subtype of epithelial cell, the best for epithelial cell, and identifying different subtypes of fibroblasts and they've explored their differential roles in the context of inflammatory bowel disease. Now this work, which is sort of under the the broad umbrella of the the Human Cell Atlas project, 
is taking a very different perspective, which is looking at the development of the human fetal intestine over time and applying some of those same intestinal single cell uh, sequencing approaches that they've used previously and then combining them with a, a very cool novel technique called spatial transcriptomics. Cool. This sounds like a massive piece of work. Um, what is spatial transcriptomics? I've not heard of that one before. An extremely good question, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk a bit about the the detail of of both of the methods that they've used to um, they've used to characterize uh, the, the the development of these cell types within the human gut. So, what they're trying to do is create this kind of longitudinal atlas of the developing human gut. So they're looking at sort of several different dimensions. So first, time. So weeks post conception. Uh, looking at um, the different cell types that are there, but also looking at where they are arranged, both along the gut, so foregut and hindgut, um, or small intestine and large intestine, but also where they are in the gut. Are they in the epithelium, the lamina propria, or in, 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 deeper, uh, in deeper layers? To kind of answer your question, the scale and technical complexity of this work is, is pretty mind-blowing. So it's worth definitely spending a couple of minutes talking about just the scale, the scale and technical complexity of this work and the two key uh, methods used. So we talked last episode a little bit about single cell RNA sequencing. Mm. In this in this study, they've performed this approach on human fetal intestinal tissue from different locations and gestational ages. So they've, they've analysed 77 samples in all. That's a lot. That is um, as as someone who's done some single cell RNA sequencing, and you have too, that's a lot of samples. <laughs> that's a scary number of samples. <laughs> and, uh, quite an expensive number of samples. Yeah. So we mentioned RNA sequencing in the last episode, which is an unbiased method for looking at all the genes that are being transcribed in a sample. And we're normally thinking about a sort of a bulk sample, so a blood sample or a piece of tissue, and we extract all the RNA from all the cells in that sample, we process it, and then we get an idea of, you know, maybe comparing health and disease and, and what, what uh, RNA transcripts are up or down regulated in, in disease. This is single cell RNA sequencing, and that really just does the procedure in miniature. And uh, here we're looking at the level of single cells. Uh, which is technically challenging in terms of both how to generate the data and then also how to analyse it and interpret it. But the real power of it is that it allows us to understand different subsets of cells, different types of cells, but also different transcriptional states of different cell types and how those gene expression profiles change in different conditions, diseases or locations. And so in this work, they have they've created this atlas looking at the transcriptional profiles of over 75,000 cells over this really important window in development where where really all of the important structures and uh, and so on of the gut develop including the development of the cryptovillus axis and the colonization of the gut by different immune cell populations and they describe uh, an astounding 101 different cell states. So not necessarily all different cell types, 
Some of them will be a particular cell type, but expressing a different sort of pattern and set of, of genes because they're, they're doing something slightly different in the tissue at that time. But 101 different cell states, and that includes epithelial cells and fibroblasts, but also endothelial cells and pericytes and neural cells in, involved in the, in the gut, um, uh, muscular, uh, muscular cells, mesothelium, and all of the immune cell populations. And then if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough for you, they then go on <laughs> to use this novel technique that you've asked about called spatial transcriptomics. And this is to look at the localization of genes expressed within the anatomy of the developing gut. So what they've done is they've used a, a very cool technique called, called Visium, where you can look at the gene expression within each area of a section of tissue. So effectively, they've sliced uh, some, a, thin, a thin section of tissue, and then you can take individual spots within that tissue, and you can see what genes are being transcribed in that place. And then using basically magic, but very clever bioinformatic <laughs> analyses, you can take your single-cell RNA-seq that you've used before to identify all the different cell populations, and then integrate it with your spatial data and say what kind of cells are likely to be at different places in the tissue. So I, it really is it really is truly, truly astounding. Wow. I just want to say wow, because this is so much work and it's a really cool um, and so huge. It really is. You're right. This is going to sort of be analysed for years or used for years and years by by scientists. So what have they found using these amazing techniques? Well, I mean, in truth, I can't, I can't, it's not really possible to scratch the surface um, within, within, no, within, a, sure. <laughs> within a podcast. Um, this paper is huge and, I mean, it is ridiculous in, in a good way. Um, there is so much there and it's really relevant to pretty much every cell type and process in the human gut that you can probably imagine. I'll highlight a few particular cool things that this work sheds some light light on. First, I, I, th I think the temporal aspect, so having, having samples from fetal gut at different weeks post-conception, shows the development over time of the intestinal epithelial compartments in a way that's not really been done before. So even at really early time points in gestational development, even before the development of what we'd recognise as, as crypts and villi, so the cryptovillus axis, you can see differences in gene expression in the small and large intestine epithelial cells. So they're even even way before we've even got a, a villus in sight, the small and large wow. intestine are different in terms of their gene expression. So for instance, the small intestine expresses um, a, a, a molecule called CCL25, um, which is the ligand for uh, a chemokine receptor called CCR9, which is involved in immune cell homing to the developing gut. We can see the development of some really interesting cell types later in, in gestation. So one, one that I've been thinking about recently are enteroendocrine cells. So these are the sensory and secretory cells that you find in the epithelium uh, in both the small and large bowel. And they, they sense luminal contents and then respond uh, by releasing gut hormones, which we are increasingly recognising have, have a really important role in, in metabolic uh, responses to nutrition. And we can also start to infer potential interactions between the developing enteric nervous system and these secretory cells. 
and I think it shows this this really early interaction between those kind of neuro and neural and hormonal systems in the control of gut function. The, the second thing this 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 paper talks about in a bit of depth is the development of that cryptovillus structure. They look at one of the subsets of these mesenchymal cells, uh, the the S2 fibroblast that they've described before, and they show that they have a role in both supporting and maintaining the epithelial crypt. And this work particularly shows that those those same cells are associated with the development of villus structures right right at the start of the cryptovillus axis development, and that they differ again between the small and large intestine, again suggesting that these cells are involved in this distinct structure, distinct structures of the small and large intestine. And then it goes on and then just, you know, briefly discusses the development of gut-associated lymphoid tissue, uh, the colonisation of immune cell populations and, and the importance of the, the stroma around gut-associated lymphoid tissue, so the fibroblasts, and how they help with its development. So, you know, not much, not covering anything you know, much, too, too no. crucial. Uh, <laughs> um, and then, you know, as, as, and then just as the, sort of the cherry on the cake, the group use this data to unpick the potential cellular basis for a variety of congenital intestinal disorders. So trying to work out which cells might be involved in those disorders. So um, such as Hirschsprung's um, intestinal mal malrotation and omphalocele. And I think this last bit really shows the power of this work because I think this paper's real impact is not in necessarily the findings and the conclusions of the paper, but in its in its role as just really an un unparalleled resource to ask specific questions about gut development related to particular genes or cell types or processes that you're interested in. And the great thing is that you don't have to be a hardcore coder with a, with a deep love of R or Python to go and have a look for yourself because the group have put together a really nice graphical user interface which you can access on the web and you can look at the gene expression uh, and uh, so at the single cell but also the spatial transcriptomics and look at gene regulatory networks and receptor ligand interactions um, for whatever your your chosen gene of choice is and we'll share share the link to that in the show notes amazing thank you that sounds like a really impressive paper you also mentioned human cell atlas is this integrated within that so i think it's part of this human cell atlas um yeah. consortium so this is a sort of an international an international consortium of different funders and research groups who are supporting the use of single cell sequencing approaches in health and in disease for the whole of the human body and the sort of the broad aim is to make a an atlas of the human body within health and disease. Um, I think it's probably going to be more like, you know, hundreds of hundreds of atlases, more more like a more like a geography yeah, yeah. Map, map room than it will be a single atlas. I, I think this makes a fantastic contribution to that. Yeah, amazing. Thank you very much, Fitz. That was a brilliant paper. So now we'll move on to our five in five uh, section and we'll we'll try and do it in five i'm not sure if we'll manage we it we are definitely not going to manage it in five i've just had a look okay. at the papers and i think we're both gonna 
go off on one a bit. Not manage it. Um, I don't okay, know about fine. you, Tamsin, but there's just so many interesting things at the moment. I know, I know. I've, I've really, <laughs> really struggled. I came up with about, we could have done about 20 papers yeah, um, I know. this week. Yeah, I know, so true. Um, and I think this probably tells us we should do the podcast more often. But um, So to start with, I've got a okay. good one, which actually kind of riffs off the last paper because uh, where I was talking about endocrine cells. So mm-hmm. this is the results of a trial in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Once Weekly Semaglutide in Adults with Overweight or Obesity. This is, I think, a really exciting trial of a pharmacological intervention in obesity that seems to work really well. So obesity and its associated complications of metabolic syndrome and diabetes is really one of the great global health challenges of our time. And non-pharmacological interventions of diet and exercise are broadly ineffective. And the current armamentarium of of drug interventions is also pretty limited, both in terms of its uh, efficacy and side effect profiles. And there is a real unmet need for drug treatments for those with obesity. Semaglutide is a glucagon-like receptor 1 or GLP-1 analogue which is licensed for treatment of type 2 diabetes. And previous trials have noted that individuals with diabetes who are given this drug often lost weight. Now, GLP-1 is one of these peptide hormones released from enteroendocrine cells uh, in the small intestine after meals. And it's got a number of functions, including inducing insulin secretion, delaying gastric emptying, and importantly, it seems to, to signal to induce the, the sensation of satiety. So this is a multi-centre international phase three trial of nearly 2,000 patients, either with obesity or who are overweight with complications. And importantly, none of them had diabetes. And they were randomised two to one to receive either weekly semaglutide or placebo. And it was a nice long trial. They looked over 68 weeks and the primary endpoint was the percentage of weight loss and particularly the proportion achieving greater than 5% weight loss that's been shown in previous trials and observational data sets to be associated with improved cardiovascular outcomes. In this trial, the average age was uh, around 46 Um, The average weight of participants was about 105 kilos with a BMI of 38. So on the intention to treat analysis, individuals getting semaglutide lost 14.9% of their body weight compared to a weight loss of just 2% in the placebo arm. So importantly, 86% of those taking semaglutide lost 5% body weight or more. But really amazingly, 51% 51% lost 15% body weight. So that's that's really enormous um, changes in, in body weight. And, and they showed, showed that that's associated with um, a number of other physical and biochemical improvements. So re- reduction in visceral fat mass and then consequent improvements in blood pressure, HbA1c, um, lipids and so on, all improved. And also people felt better. So those global improvements in, in quality of life indices. Semaglutide, as has been shown in previous studies, is associated with some side effects. The most common are gallstone disease and pancreatitis, predominantly secondary to the same gallstones. And we see that both with other GLP-1 analogues, but also with individuals with profound weight loss from any, uh, from any method. So overall, 
semaglutide is more efficacious than weight loss that's been seen with other anti-obesity therapies and it really has great efficacy at generating that 5% weight loss which is the widely used criterion for successful treatments. So that was about 10 minutes that's, just on one paper. But it's pretty breakthrough. That's actually, that's a pretty important study. It's good. It's mine now. Okay, right. What, what, have, you, what have you got for, for me, Tamsin? First paper is a success story for primary biliary cholangitis. Uh, last week, I presented a negative trial. This week, it's a positive trial. So this was Fitch, so fibrates for itch in fibrosing cholangiopathies, um, which was a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled trial uh, published in Gastroenterology um, in the March 2021 print edition. Pruritus, as we know, is often a really very difficult problem, um, an intractable problem often um, in cholestatic liver disease. And there are various drugs uh, recommended by current guidelines, so cholestyramine, rifampicin, naltrexone, sertraline. But these often have limited efficacy, um, and with some they have limiting side effects. Benzofibrate plus ursidioxycholic acid has been shown previously to be useful to initiate complete biochemical response in some PBC patients that are resistant to ERSO alone. And they noticed that as well as the biochemical improvement in these studies, itch also improved in the groups receiving benzofibrate. But it hasn't been assessed for the treatment of itch in the wider spectrum of cholestatic liver disease, including PBC, but also encompassing PSC and secondary sclerosis and cholangitis. And also in um, a wider group of patients who maybe do respond biochemically uh, to ursidioxycholic acid alone. So this trial randomised adults with PBC, PSC and SSC with moderate to severe itch to benzofibrate or placebo. And they quantified moderate or severe itch by a visual analogue scale of 0 to 10. So any antipyritic drugs that they were on, except for cholestyramine or topical agents like menthol creams and things, and so were continued, but other ones were stopped, so rifampicin, naloxone, sertraline. The primary endpoint was a 50% or more reduction in the itch intensity on the VAS score at day 21. This study, like the other study that I reported recently in the last podcast about PBC, um, it was difficult to recruit to. So um, they recruited 74 participants in total, so 38 were randomised to benzofibrate, and 36 to placebo, and most of them were either PBC or PSC uh, patients. Only two of them had secondary sclerosis and cholangitis. The median VAS score in each group at baseline was 7 for each. And in each group, 80% of the participants were also taking ursidioxycholic acid, and 4% in each were taking cholestyramine. As I said, slow recruitment. They planned to recruit over uh, one year, but they ended up stopping the trial at three years, even though they hadn't met their recruitment target. But they did meet their pre-calculated power because they had a lower dropout rate than they expected. The primary outcome, which was the 50% reduction in the visual analog score at day 21 for itch, 45% of the benzofibrate group reached that primary outcome versus 11% of the placebo group. So that translates into a median visual analogue score in the benzofibrate group of 7 at day 0 compared to 4 at day 21. There were no serious adverse events. Serum creatinine increased by 3% from baseline um, with benzofibrate treatment, but the median change of creatinine didn't actually differ between two groups. 
So although this was a short trial, only three weeks of therapy, this is a good news story for pruritus treatment um, and should really inform practice going forward. Um, But we'd need some longitudinal data on efficacy and safety because um, it was only a three-week trial. That's fantastic news. And um, with uh, 45% achieving the uh, primary outcome, I mean, that's a sort of number needed to treat of, of, of two, that's massive given how challenging the symptom is in, in the clinic. While I totally agree with you that longer term data is always needed, you know, this is a class of drugs that we've been prescribing for, well, decades, and so have got a great deal of long term, you know, safety data on it. So, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's one of true. the, you know, the real benefits of sort of repurposing these drugs or extending the license for these drugs is that, mm. we, you know, we've already got quite a lot of uh, experience in, 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 in using them. Um, yeah, no, that's true. fantastic. Thanks for sharing that one. So have you got another one for me? Yes, I've got something different a bit for you. Uh, everyone's favourite topic, pharmacokinetics. Um, yeah, just what you're always after for on a, on a podcast. But I think this is relevant and I think this is important. Uh, it's going slightly niche. Um, so this is uh, this was in APT uh, recently, a few weeks ago, flagged up by, um, by a friend on Twitter, of course, where I learn everything. Nice. And the title of this is Maternal Thiopurine Metabolism During Pregnancy in IBD and Clearance of Thiopurine Metabolites and Outcomes in Exposed Neonates. This is from um, uh, a group in Australia, the Piccolo Study Group. Pregnant and breastfeeding women often get a pretty poor deal when it comes to clinical trials, particularly clinical trials of therapeutics. And I think the the current Mm. example that people are talking about are are COVID vaccines and the fact that they were excluded from all of the trials. And now everyone's going, well, oh, we don't have any data. And it's it's extraordinarily (laughs) frustrating um, for, you know, 50% of the population who can potentially become pregnant to be excluded uh, from, from these trials. It's very frustrating. In IBD, pregnancy is a worrying time for women affected um, because of considerable concerns and justifiable concerns about drug risks as well as the dangers of active disease. And, you know, our general approach is that the importance is to maintain disease control as that seems to be the greatest risk to pregnancy outcomes as well as to avoid obvious sort of known teratogens like, like methotrexate. However, there are real questions that remain about some of the agents that we use regularly, particularly about their pharmacokinetics in pregnancy, as well as the transfer of those agents to the newborn, and whether that, beyond the sort of the teratogenic things that we worry about, concerns about uh, immunosuppression and potential vaccine efficacy in the newborn. So this, this study group, the Piccolo Group, which stands for Pregnancy in Crohn's and Colitis, Observations, Levels and Outcomes, have been uh, looking at these factors with thiopurines in a cohort of patients in Australia. Thiopurines, so um, mercaptopurine and the prodrug azathioprine, are generally considered safe in pregnancy. And they are commonly used maintenance therapies in IBD, um, either prescribed alone or alongside anti-TNF therapy. Thiopurines are metabolized in the liver into the therapeutically active molecule which is nucleotides or 6-TGN, the adequate levels of which are associated with disease control and excessive levels are associated with myelosuppression. However, on that uh, sort of metabolic pathway, 
you can get sort of hypermethylation or shunting of the of the mercaptopurine metabolites and that can lead to the accumulation of 6-methylmercaptopurine or, or 6-MMP which at high levels is associated with hepatotoxicity. Now both of these me uh, metabolites can be detected in serum assays and on the basis of which we dose titrates. However, it's unclear how pregnancy affects those metabolic pathways and therefore what, how those levels change in pregnancy. There have been some previous studies that have suggested that uh, 6-TGN levels may, may drop during pregnancy and there have been previous associations with severe neonatal anemia or raised uh, liver enzymes with thiopurines. So in this cohort of 40-odd pregnant women, the levels were measured before, during and after pregnancy and where possible levels were also taken from the newborn both at the time of delivery from cord blood but also six weeks postpartum which is sort of a, an important time because that's when the first round of vaccinations are given. So the first finding of note is that this study has confirmed that six TGN levels fall during pregnancy and they seem to be lowest in the second trimester compared to either pre or post pregnancy levels and the differences were pretty marked so the median level in in this cohort in the second trimester was was 179 which is well below the therapeutic range um, compared to a, a median of 323 postpartum in contrast the levels of 6 mmp um, that sort of the toxic uh, metabolites mm. generated by shunting increased during pregnancy and they had the highest in the second trimester, suggesting that that drop of 6-TGN levels, while it might be partly due to uh, increased volume of distribution or other effects, is partly due to alterations in shunting during pregnancy. From a sort of clinical point of view, the reassuring part was that in this, in this cohort, the reduced levels of 6-TGN in the second trimester didn't seem to be associated with an increased risk of flare. Now, the second part of this, which I think is really important when we're sort of thinking about sort of counselling uh, counselling patients, is what, the, what they've done when looking at cord blood and uh, blood tests in the neonate. So 6-TGN was detected in cord blood at birth, generally at considerably lower levels than in the maternal circulation, although the two did correlate as, as you would expect. Now, reassuringly, both 6-TGN and 6-MMP were undetectable in all of the infants tested six weeks postpartum. So the, these metabolites are cleared relatively quickly after delivery. Because of the previous study that had, had flagged up this risk of postpartum anemia, they, they looked specifically at um, hematological and uh, biochemical changes in the neonate. And they didn't see any cases of severe postpartum uh, anemia, which was reassuring. However, 80% of the children had some some either biochemical or hematological abnormality, either with um, uh, mildly elevated liver biochemistry or thrombocytosis. And both of those seemed to result, resolve over the next few months. Now, it's important to, to recognise that this is not a, a study that has a control arm. There weren't individuals who didn't have IBD or who didn't have thiopurines or di weren't receiving thiopurines as a comparator. So it's hard to clearly link these particular biochemical or haematological changes to the drug necessarily. Mm. And it may be 
that you know potentially particularly the thrombocytosis may be due to some subclinical inflammation of the underlying inflammatory bowel disease or a, a, another factor. But overall, I think this is an important study flagging up some issues with alterations in the pharmacokinetics of thiopurines in pregnancy, and also I think providing sort of the sort of the clearest evidence. Of, of, of what happens in, in the neonate for those. And it's, I think it's a great use of real-world data to inform a sort of a challenging, challenging aspect of practice in a historically pretty understudied patient group. That was very interesting um, and actually leads to many, many more questions, I think, that we don't really have time to go into right now. But yes, um, and, and kind of also begs the question, do we need to do more of this? Um, um, so... My next one, uh, moving on, is another liver one, and it's about Wilson's disease. And um, I, I thought I'd do this paper in support of the recent Rare Diseases Day. So this was published in Gastroenterology in the February 2021, and it's entitled Direct Measurement of ATP7B Peptides is Highly Effective in the Diagnosis of Wilson's Disease. So I didn't know much about Wilson's disease, to be honest, but um, before I read this paper, but apparently it relies on the combination of clinical and biochemical features for diagnosis. Um, so current practice guidelines recommend the use of the Leipzig score. And basically um, this combines things like the presence of Kaiser Fleischer rings, um, some biochemical things like low ceruloplasmin and some the presence or absence of known genetic mutations to, to guide the diagnosis. But what I, I didn't really appreciate about the diagnosis of uh, Wilson's disease is, is actually can be quite challenging. So low ceruloplasmin levels alone aren't enough to diagnose or refute Wilson's disease. And the, the gene that is involved um, in Wilson's disease is the ATP7B gene. Sequencing it can be helpful um, and you can find some sort of known mutations which can be helpful in the diagnosis, but actually there are a lot of uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms and also variants of unknown significance within that gene. So you don't always get a clear answer. In this study, the authors set out to measure ATP7B peptide directly from dried blood spots using a mass spectrometry technique that's modified to use monoclonal anti antibodies to target the protein of interest. And this allows very small quantities to be detected. So they established a normal range by testing 150 healthy control samples. Um, and then they took blood samples from patients with known Wilson's disease, or diagnosed Wilson's disease, 216 patients and 48 obligate carriers. So these were family members of patients with heterozygous variants in the ATP7B gene. So they found that the signature peptide levels in patients um, the patient's dry blood spots were below cutoff in 90% of samples for both ATP7B1056, which contains the most common Wilson's disease causing mutation, and ATP7B887. And they used the, the presence or absence of these to work out how good this test was. The receiver operating curve analysis generated a really pretty good area under the curve of 0.98 using these parameters. The peptide analysis of the ATP7B887 was found to have a very high sensitivity of 91% and a specificity of 98% with high and 
positive and negative predictive values. And, and in patients that are a bit more difficult to diagnose, so with normal ceruloplasmin concentrations, there are only 16 of these in the cohort, but 87% of them uh, were deficient in this protein, so would have been diagnosed with this test. And in patients without clear genetic results, uh, 94% were deficient um, and therefore would have been diagnosed with this test. So obviously this needs separate validation in other cohorts, but it's pretty um, exciting because this might represent another biomarker that might be a really helpful development in diagnosing Wilson's disease. And the last paper um, I wanted to cover, published in Lancet Gastro Hep in the January 2021 print issue, and it's entitled Redefining Fatty Deliver Disease fatty liver disease and international patient perspective. Briefly, this concerns the proposed change in nomenclature of NAFL, so non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, to MAFLD, metabolic dysfunction-associated fatty liver disease. And I'm a bit reluctant to admit that I wasn't aware of this proposed change before now, even though it's been um, talked about quite a lot in the literature over the last, last six months um, the proposed name change from NAFLD to MAFLD, um, the full details can be found in the May 2020 print issue of Gastroenterology and also the July 2020 print issue of the Journal of Hepatology, and I'll put links on the show notes. But basically, um, it was an international expert consensus statement which called for the change of name from NAFLD to MAFLD. They wanted to do this for several reasons. One, because they wanted to move away from the NAFLD versus NASH dichotomy of, of OK versus bad liver disease um, and move towards uh, grading the liver disease severity on the grade of activity in the fibrosis stage. And also they wanted to move um, towards diagnostic criteria that have a, f- a focus on positive presence of things rather than the absence of alcohol consumption. NAFLD histologically is the presence of steatosis in over 5% of hepatocytes in the absence of significant ongoing or recent alcohol consumption and other known causes of liver disease. That's the accepted definition now. But the proposed algorithm for MAFLD is hepatic steatosis in an adult, and that's either detected by imaging, biomarkers on blood, liver histology. And if the individual is overweight or obese, they've got MAFLD. Or if they've got type 2 diabetes, they've got MAFLD. Or if they are lean or normal weight, uh, but they also have the presence of at least two metabolic risk abnormalities, such as blood pre- high blood pressure, high triglycerides, etc., then they are also diagnosed with MAFLD. There's been quite a lot of discussion since this has been proposed in the literature, and the authors, when they did propose it, acknowledged they'd need to, this would need validation in prospective studies to assess its utility in clinical practice, especially with the proposed new diagnostic criteria. The article um, that I want to talk about um, is actually the patient's perspective on this. So it outlines that patient groups, representative groups, um, are in support of this change of name from NAFLD to MAFLD, and for many reasons. But in particular, they perceive that MAFLD has less stigma attached to it as a term than NAFLD. So um, as I wasn't aware of this, I'd really encourage people to have a read um, of this and some of the other editorials that have been published on the consequences of this proposed change. And that's the five and five. 
slash five and ten. <laughs> Maybe we should call it five and fifteen. Five and fifteen. <laughs> I like it. I think we can. I think we might be able to manage that. And um, that last yeah. uh, that last um, articles. You know, it's really interesting and thought provoking. I haven't read those, and I will. I will now go and have a have a look at some of those. Excellent. Well, we seem to have got yeah. to the end of this. What seems to have been a particularly long episode of our podcast. <laughs> I'm looking forward to our next episode because, as we've said, it's been um, it's been a bumper bumper crop of papers in the in the last few weeks, and I think we've pretty much got the lineup for the next episode sorted. We'll be talking a lot about albumin and terlipressin in liver disease and in hepatorenal syndrome. I'm also going to talk about um, the battle between keto and plant-based diets for uh, for weight loss and and probably something about enteral nutrition in the context of acute severe colitis. So yeah, lots to lots to tune in for next time. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Gut Instinct. Please let us know what you think of our podcast and leave us a review or get in touch on Twitter at GI Update or drop us an email at gutinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>